Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? how they pick themselves up when things didn't go right, and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. Since I last put out the podcast, which was a couple of weeks ago, sorry about the break, you may have seen if you follow me on Instagram at Smashing the Ceiling that I have been away to take on one of the biggest challenges of my life so far, which was running just over three marathons on three consecutive days along the coast of Dorset in the south of England. It was a mixture of really fun and really, really hard, and I'll be speaking about the experience a bit more on next week's podcast. Not so much about the running parts, just in case you hate running, don't be put off, but about discovering your limits and clambering over obstacles in your own mind to get where you want to go. It was certainly an eye-opening experience for me, and I want to help you to do the same, to tackle and succeed at whatever challenges or barriers are in your way this year. So do listen in next week for that one. I have to say off the back of that, I've had a bit of a cold. So if I sound a bit nasal, sorry, guys, um, I'm on the improve. In the meantime, we'll get on with this week's episode. I want you to try and imagine living your life with the person you dislike the most standing at your shoulder the whole time. Imagine the cruelest things they ever said to you, the way they made you feel, and how the stress associated with that impacted your happiness, your productivity, and your life. But what if you lived your entire life with a presence on your shoulder, especially if that presence was malevolent? What if you could never shake that voice off or escape from the clutches of their control? My guest this week, Sarah Swan, is a senior clinical psychologist that specialises in helping people suffering from psychosis and related mental health disorders. Her patients are often terrified, misunderstood and ostracised by those with little compassion or understanding about the symptoms involved. And before I spoke to her, I would really freely admit that this was an area that I didn't know much about. Sarah's research has previously focused on schizophrenia, the links between post-traumatic stress and psychosis, and the impact of chronic use of cannabis on mental health. She told me in the pre-recording chat that people often confuse a psychologist with a psychic, which right made me laugh, and we opened by talking a little about what she does. Before we kick into it, Sarah was speaking in a school on Friday, and I also promised them a mention. If there's any teachers or students from Mossbourne Community Academy listening to this, then hi guys and thank you. Welcome on board. But here's Sarah. Half the conversation I have with people, to be honest, is more about what I'm not rather than what I actually am. Um, So outside of my kind of formal clinic room, um, you know, if I'm at a party or, you know, the pub or something and, you know, people ask, oh, you know, what do you do? And I say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a psychologist. And nine times out of 10, someone will look at me and go, what am I thinking then? Um, and I do have to remind people, I said psychologist, not psychic. Um, but I think people tend to think that just because you're a psychologist, you're going to be analysing all of their, you know, um, body language or, you know, you're going to be seeing that, um, looking at them and thinking, oh, you know, how are they relating to this person or, you know, what are they thinking? What are they doing? And actually, you're really not. You're just there for a gin and tonic. You know, you're not there to, to kind of unpick their childhood. You just want to kind of hang out but people do have a bit of a preconception that we're kind of trained to to know what what's 
what's kind of going on for people inside yeah you switch off your psychologist mode when you're uh, when you're not at work I presume you're not just like sussing people out all the time wherever you are oh 100% yeah no 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 I'm really not um although sometimes you might see something a bit odd you might think oh I think something's going on there but obviously you don't like, say anything or anything like that um but no I think where you know where we get um mixed up with psychiatrists as well I think because you know anyone that kind of associates a psychologist with mental health they will automatically think of a of a of a medical doctor a psychiatrist um people do tend to think that you've you've got the pills in your pocket and you're ready to go but that's not the way we work there's an old cliche that in britain we're buttoned up with a stiff upper lip and never talk about our feelings whereas netflix and every movie you've ever seen would make you believe that all americans are quotes in therapy a psychiatrist is a doctor that can prescribe medication but it did make me wonder, what's the difference between a therapist and a clinical psychologist? Yeah, see, this see, this is a real, real, I have quite a bee in my bonnet about this. So being a clinical psychologist, you have to be registered with the um, HCPC, which is the Health and Care Professions Council. And so um, they're basically like the governing body that makes sure that only people that have the right qualifications can call themselves certain things. So um, to have the title clinical psychologist, you have to have done um, a doctorate that's recognised to have met all the standards, etc. And so a Johnny-come-lately can't just call themselves a clinical psychologist. However, for unprotected titles like therapist, um, you know, really anyone could kind of give themselves that title. So, you know, when you see kind of business cards hanging up, um, kind of in coffee shops and stuff, and, you know, people are offering counselling or, you know, calling themselves um, a therapist and offering kind of psychological therapies, it is really, really important that if they have their name on on that card, that you go home and Google them. Um, And it's really important to check that you've you know that whoever they're saying they are that they really are they really are yeah 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 but but it's amazing that that can happen though isn't it like when you think about it that people can just set up shop and be like right I'm practicing now here you go in you come come and talk to me and I'm going to make money from your problems yeah very much so and I think because um kind of in the NHS we're very much held accountable so you know we have regular supervision you know we're doing all of our CPD our continued professional development you know everything is kind of looked at with a fine tooth comb however I would argue that in private practice things are slightly different you know you don't necessarily have someone kind of breathing down your back especially if you're if you've set up completely independently and you're not associated with with a company um you know who knows what someone's doing when you go into their home office and someone's giving you therapy you know so I think it's important to to be aware of what you're looking for and to make sure that that it is what it says on the tin. That got a bit, that got a bit heavy, didn't it? <laughs> no, no, no. But it's true that I think it's really important because actually like mental health is the awareness of mental health and the treatment of mental health has just massively exponentially grown not in this not only in this country but all over the world. I think that the worst thing about that is actually that it's extremely difficult for people to help seek. Um so if their very first experience of actually putting themselves out there to go and access help and then that being extremely unhelpful because of someone's lack of training or just for whatever reason that can have a massive impact on whether someone is going to kind of want to access psychological therapies or talking therapy again you know 
uh, experiences really do have an impact on kind of what comes next. And so if we do have people doing um, unethical practice or dangerous things or unhelpful things, it just does have an impact. And I think it's something that is a real shame that there's kind of not more governance around Mm. really. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we can only sort of hope that as things progress and develop that 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 the regulation surrounding that gets tightened up basically <laughs> you know just going right back to the beginning um when when did psychology kind of pop itself onto your radar like what did you want to be when you were little and how did you get into the idea of psychology oh gosh this is hilarious because oh gosh i'm going to sound like an absolute weirdo but um i actually wanted to be a pathologist i wanted to be that person who you know, did post-mortems. But yeah, I became really, really obsessed with um, kind of crime scenes and, um, you know, kind of a mix. I wanted to be kind of um, a forensic scientist come pathologist who would kind of put all the pieces together and figure it all out and, you know, open up dead bodies and all sorts of random things. And I think back, I was there was obviously something going on there. God knows what. Um but yeah, I wanted to be a pathologist kind of around age 10. Um, everyone wants to be an X Factor star now um, at age 10 or kind of somewhere from The Only Way is Essex. But um, yeah, I uh, wanted to be a pathologist. Um, and I kind of had this absolute thirst for those um, horrible science books. I don't okay. know if you remember those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like horrible um, histories. Yeah, exactly. But the horrible science ones had a, had obviously a topic per book. And um, I used to kind of just mow through them, you know, I just read them so quickly. And I think it was the, um, there was one called Bulging Brains, which was, um, hence the title, all about brains and kind of ha- had a bit of a nod to, I suppose, thinking about um, kind of how we are individuals and the fact that you know the brain is the center that is um kind of in charge of how we think and how we feel and what we do and you know we are who we are because of I suppose our minds and our you know are our minds kind of centered in our brains and what happens when you know we have an accident and maybe we have a, a brain injury you know does the brain relearn or you know all these things and I was just fascinated by brains then so it became less about dead bodies as a whole and just more about how brains work um and kind of that stayed with me from kind of that young age and I loved science at school so I kind of excelled excelled at that and then because of the school I went to kind of everyone just kind of said well you're really good at science so you should be a doctor and I kind of thought well yeah that sounds quite good might as well you know I I like biology you know I'm good with people yeah I, I think that'd be quite good um so I managed to get some work experience um, at our local hospital, shadowing all different medical doctors in different disciplines and different specialities. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a super experience to have. Um, I think I was 15, so it was around GCSEs. um and you know I think I was you know I remember spending a, a day in the um, in the fractures clinic and I did some time in cardiology and we did some time in geriatrics we did kind of the whole week it was incredible so cool but, isn't it yeah I mean to be honest I do count that as the time that um is responsible for why I'm not a medic and why I'm a psychologist because you know and I've got tons of medic friends so this is not a huge generalization I know this was just the behavior of one individual which at the time I took as well this is the way 
kind of medicine works then. But I had a particularly tricky experience with a doctor. I remember treating uh, an old gentleman who had dementia and he was changing this gentleman's catheter and talking to him about it because he kept pulling it out because of his confusion and disorientation because of the dementia. He kept pulling out his catheter. And so he was getting ready to um, reinsert the catheter and he hadn't asked the gentleman whether he wanted the students present to observe the procedure. And, you know, now as a practicing psychologist, I understand that maybe there were issues around consent and capacity and maybe he'd had the conversation with, I don't know, um, you know, someone else in the in that gentleman's family if he didn't have capacity to consent. I don't know. But at the time, I just thought, you know, I'm a 15-year-old young girl. I don't know if this gentleman really necessarily wants me to watch such an intimate procedure. And I remember saying to the doctor at the time, oh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to stand aside. So I was just going to go around the corner and wait until that was finished. And, and um, I remember the doctor made a really big deal out of it. You know, he kind of made me feel like I was completely in the wrong for holding this person's humanity in mind. And he kind of just said, you know, very loudly on the ward in front of the other two pupils that I was with, um, you know, if you're serious about being being a doctor, then, you know, you need to see these things. And he just completely missed the whole concept that it wasn't about seeing the procedure. It wasn't about viewing the ins and outs of putting a catheter in. It was about what it might have meant to that person. It was about dignity. It was about something more, you know. And And I said to him, this is just not for me. And I just walked away, which I think is so ballsy and just ridiculous now. And I think back about, you know, making lasting impressions, not wanting to burn bridges. But I kind of walked away that moment and I just said, not for me. If that is the way that you have to be as a doctor, then that does not fit in my values. And that was the end of the psychiatry dream for me. And so I went on to Google. I got home really fired up, got onto Google. And I literally think I typed in like, alternative to psychiatry and then clinical <laughs> psychology popped up <laughs> you're like this is for and, me <laughs> yeah and I just thought yeah I'll have a bit of that instead thanks it kind of just spoke more to the human side and I know that as I said at the start that that is a complete generalization and I probably just caught that doctor on a bad day and you know I'm sure that's not representative of his practice but it just really rubbed me up the wrong way because I look back on it now and I, I am a bit of a believer in, you know, things do happen for a reason. Um, oh, me too. And um, medicine probably wasn't the best route for me. You know, t- you know, not even being funny, I think I would have been, you know, a very competent, um, caring doctor. I don't think that would have, you know, I'm the kind of person, I'm very conscientious, I throw myself into whatever I do. So, you know, whether I was making coffees, whether I was um, a domestic staff, whether I was a lawyer, whatever I was going to be, I would have always thrown myself into it. But... Um, I just think when when you're that age it's it's so hard to hold all those things in mind and I think yeah the impact of one slightly negative experience it's so interesting how that can be the take home message when actually the rest of the week was great and I really enjoyed, and I really enjoyed it um but it was just that one thing that just left such a bitter taste in my mouth I thought nah no 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 not for me so you moved on to psychology anyway and you know clearly that was the career for you because you have just flown and flown and flown um do you want to tell us a little bit about studying your undergrad and your doctorate and um what you have made your specialism Sarah okay so um I 
then as you said gave up my uh, dreams of being a medic but I stuck with <laughs> I stuck with science um A-levels so um I actually went to university um I stayed in London so I went to University College London and I actually went to university to study neuroscience so this is where the brains kind of came back um to the forefront ah. The, the first year of neuroscience is really, really varied. So you do biochem, ke straight chemistry, um, anatomy. You do all sorts as well as kind of neuroscience modules. Um, so, you know, I found myself in with first year biomedical students looking at cadavers and actual brains. Funnily enough, it was the fact that the, that degree course was so varied. I didn't feel like I was getting enough of the neuroscience. You know, I was sitting in a three-hour lecture uh, on pure chemistry. And I thought, yeah, this, is, this isn't this is for me either. Like, where are the brains? I'm only getting brains a couple of times a week. This is not enough for me. I internally transferred through to a psychology um, undergrad at UCL. Um, and funnily enough, I got way more of the neuroscience that I was interested in doing a psychology degree than I did in the neuroscience. Because obviously in neuroscience degree we were learning about you know the neuroscience of the eye the neuroscience of movement you know we were learning about the whole thing and actually I don't really care how your brain sends signals to your toe I kind of wanted to know how the brain makes us feel fear or how the brain makes us fall in love or when something goes wrong with some neurotransmitters how we can feel depressed or you know whatever that is so I graduated from um, UCL first because I knew at that point already that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist and to do that the doctorate is super competitive and I knew that really you need to be kind of top of your game when it comes to your undergrad marks um, wow. just to try to make it that bit more accessible so um I busted my bum to to get a first at undergrad and good on you that is the sort of thing you. that should be celebrated Yay! definitely <laughs> pat on the back for me um pat on the back defo when you apply for the doctorate they really want you to try to have a realistic understanding of what it's like to work um with people in distress um but also to have a realistic idea of what a psychologist actually does so you know not the lying on a couch you know um thinking about your mother's breast or something like that from when you were three but you know the real crux of the day-to-day -day, what does it actually look like you need to have an understanding of that because it's not for everyone um and so they want people to be coming on to the training course with a realistic idea of that because currently and this may change but um the doctorate is funded which means that our tuition fees are paid for but we're also given a salary because we're trainee psychologists working in the nhs whilst we are on the doctorate and so you know there's a lot of money that's going into people that are training to be a psychologist and they don't want people getting on to the course and then three months in going course it's a bit hard working with people that are distressed all the time this isn't for me and then dropping out or doing two years of it you know you've been um all the money's been put into you and then you go oh not really not really my bag I'm not so, really into it yeah yeah, yeah yeah so it's quite a um thorough process to to get a place on the course um and then once you're on it's three years and then they boot you out the other side and you're qualified. <laughs> and you are already. <laughs> yeah. During your doctorate, you did quite a bit about uh, people with psychosis. Is that yes. right? What led you to be interested in that area of psychology? Because I was just thinking, you know, of all the um, 
kind of areas, you know, whether it's depression or post-traumatic stress or, you know, brain injury or whatever, psychosis is quite a, quite a heavy, I mean, maybe heavy is not the right word, but can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it's interesting because, again, with this whole brain theme, um, I always considered that I would um, be a, a neuropsychologist. So um, my first my first job from after qualifying, which I had to do for free, I volunteered for six months full time for free um, wow. to get also, experience. Why? <laughs> yeah, so it's really not great, um, and it's something that I that I've got quite strong um, beliefs about and kind of um, attitudes about now, to be honest. But I applied for so many jobs when I graduated from my undergrad. So considering that I'd come from a Russell Group University, considering that I had a first, you know, I'd volunteered throughout my undergrad to gain experience in mental health. So I'd worked on a couple of wards um, as a volunteer. I'd done some um, project work with people that had experienced mental health difficulties. So I felt like my CV was set up enough. Pretty strong. Yeah, to kind of get me um, an entry-level paid assistant psychologist job, which would be that... Um, kind of that gateway into finding out what a psychologist does because an assistant psychologist will work very closely with clinical psychologists and I cannot tell you how many jobs that I applied for and you know I interviewed many times but the feedback was always you know you're you're really enthusiastic you can tell you know we can tell that you're being super conscientious and kind of really great in the post but we just need someone that can hit the ground running that basically has done it before but then that's not an entry-level post is exactly and you know but it's so difficult because now being on the other side being in busy NHS services you understand why you need people to hit the ground running because you have a lot to do and it's really really busy and half the time you're under-resourced and there's lots of need and demand so it's time consuming and it's costly in a way to you know have someone that you need to train and you know that needs to find their feet but ultimately that's the only way you know you have to start somewhere I was just going to say you know I often sort of dig in with people about how how failure has kind of shaped their career and how did that sort of repeated knockback well make you feel and how did it affect where you went you know how you went on and, and where your career went I guess in the early stages oh gosh I mean it not, yeah, so I'm not even going to lie. It was it was not a good time for me. Um, I think I'd always been someone with very a very high sense of agency. I'm someone that right. I know what I need to do. The steps I can see are A, B, and C. I'll work really hard and do A, B, and C. Therefore, I'll get the outcome. You know, I need to get a first to increase my chance of getting on the doctorate. Therefore, I will put in lots and lots of hours of revision and I need to have a strong CV. Therefore, I will do X, Y, and Z volunteering on top of my um, part-time job and study. You know, I'm that kind of person. So I couldn't really connect the dots or make sense of why I'd done A, B, and C, but the outcome wasn't happening. Um, and it was really bad life timing because at that time, my now husband and I had just purchased our first flat so, yeah, so I was working in a patisserie that I'd worked um, in part time during my studies. I bumped that up to full time just to be bringing in more money whilst I was looking for a psychology related job. And with every knockback, I just thought I'm never going to get this job. So um, being super proactive, I had sent, I would say, in excess of 100 emails, you know, any psychologist 
um, email address I could find online in London. I would send them, you know, my cover letter, my CV, asking for something, you know, whether that was a telephone conversation, some work experience, a job, whatever they could give me. And after months of not having anything back, someone actually messaged me back saying, we're looking for an assistant psychologist for full time. It's a voluntary post, so it won't be paid, but we like your CV. And if you're interested, we'd like to invite you for an interview. So I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'm working in a patisserie for minimum wage. I need a psychology job. I'm just going to go and see what the deal is. So I went along. Lo and behold, I was offered the post. So now I'm stuck with this terrible dilemma. Do I leave a paid job, which isn't going to get me towards my goals in any way, shape or form, but we'll pay the mortgage. <laughs> but it's paying the mortgage. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Or do I go cap in hand to the family and pose this argument for how this probably will be the right step for me, but can I have some money to help with my daily living? So long story short, it ended up my mum and dad supported me for six months with for my portion of the bills. Um, Good on mum and dad, legends. I mean, amazing. But now when I think back, it shaped the way that I have approached the profession and the things that I do extracurricularly in the sense that it's it's incredibly limiting on who you get in the profession if the only way to kickstart your career is by working for free because unless frankly the only way I was able to do that was because I had a mum and dad who were financially able to support me so automatically you're ruling out anyone from uh, a background that basically does isn't cash rich (laughs) You know, and that rules out a large majority of people that can be bringing really amazing experience and perspective to the profession. And it means that we're getting the same type of person applying for jobs and applying to be psychologists just because the door has been set up in such a way that actually it's not really easy to open depending on kind of where you come from. So, I mean, at the time, obviously, I was just extremely over the moon that I was fortunate enough to be in the position that I could, you know, go forward with this post and it gave me great experience and it led straight away um, to me getting a paid post. And I definitely think that was the springboard for my career, 100%. And I thank um, that psychologist for giving me that opportunity. But at the same time, it does leave a bit bit of a bitter taste in my mouth because actually if things had been different for my mum and dad, things would have been different for me and who knows where I would have ended up. Mm, mm. And actually that's that's really true because, you know, it's you need a breadth of people in every profession where you're dealing with people in distress or, you know, people in ill health or what, whatever it may be. And it, the medical profession has made advances in branching out with of diversity of, of, you know, socioeconomic diversity. But actually... The reality is if you've invested a lot of money in your education, which you already had, then the fact that when you go into the time when you're supposed to be in paid work, you can't get even a loan to cover you, like a student loan to cover you for that time. So it's not the same as being in education. And the fact that you, you know, you basically have to, like you say, go cap in hand to your parents. And, you know, it's very fortunate you have supportive parents. I have supportive parents. You know, they would move heaven and earth to make things work for you to make you a success but 
it shouldn't no it shouldn't be like that no you're right it shouldn't really your success shouldn't be based on whether your mum and dad can afford to cover you is 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 the kind of plain answer um i mean things have changed don't get me wrong and i think in um psychology as a whole in the clinical psychology world i think we very um we are very much more aware of the fact that it was predominantly white middle class female and so you know there are many more um things in place now not only to increase the accessibility but also just the the knowledge that clinical psychology even exists as a career you know i kind of came across it bit by chance because I was looking for something other than being a psychiatrist. Um, but for some people, you know, if, if a medical profession isn't kind of on their radar, then clinical psychology doesn't even exist in, in, in their mind, you know. And if you can't see it, then how can you be it? So, yeah, um, I say that so much. Yeah, this, yeah. This show. <laughs> yeah and, I, and I really, really believe in that. And not only if you don't see it, but even then taking it another level, if you're not seeing people that look like you in those roles, then that's also does that also doesn't seem accessible. So, you know, if if we aren't seeing people that that we can draw similarity to, then that also makes something just seem, oh, that's probably not for me then, you know, you know, I don't, you know, we don't do that kind of thing. Um, And you and I, you know, you and I have discussed previously, you know, you've said you're a woman of colour, there are not many people of colour in psychology. And, you know, you're working pretty hard voluntarily to try and improve awareness of this as a career for people of colour in London and elsewhere. Can you just tell me a little bit about what you do with that diversity work as well, Sarah, and the passion you have for that? Yeah, so um, I am, um, I have a mixed race background. So I'm um, half white British and half um, black Caribbean. Um, So um, yeah, visually, I suppose you can see the difference when you look at me amongst (laughs) my, uh, amongst my cohort, for example. Um, I, I kind of stick out a little bit, um, but I but <laughs> I like but I like that Rocking exactly. The leopard print, yeah, ex- definitely. Oh yes, um, I do like that, and I think that I think a string a string to my bow is the fact that sometimes, particularly in the services that I work in. So going back to um, me being in psychosis, um, psychosis is much more likely to be diagnosed in black minority ethnic populations than in a white population. Um, so. And considering that I work in South London, I work in a very, very diverse um, area. And a lot of the clients that we see are not white. And no one is saying that you have to look exactly like your therapist to see change. That is not the um, the message that I'm sending in any way, shape or form. However, when we're talking about populations that are maybe known to find it difficult to help seek because of the difficulties they face being so stigmatising and kind of how they're held and thought about in society, it's not easy to come forth and say, this is what's going on for me, can I have some help with it? Um, if if what you see when you go into that clinic is a really kind of wide range of staff, old, young, fat, thin, black, white, man, woman, disabled, able-bodied, whatever you want to say, you know, a real good mixture, then you might find some some warmth or some some safety in that no you know there might be a connection that you can you can make even on a superficial level that helps to open the door for you then to kind of feel safe enough to engage with the team as a whole um and so I'm really keen to kind of build up as much diversity as possible in the profession and you know I'm not um you know 
blinds to the fact that we we don't have a lot of men in the profession or you know we don't have you know, people from different sexual orientations religious orientation you know, all those sorts of things we obviously we need to have a good array of people from all different um spectrums but my focus really is on um increasing more visible difference ethnicity-wise, and so I am um, a volunteer in Inspiring Futures, which is a really, um, kind of this really amazing scheme that um, professionals can volunteer their time to go and talk at schools um, and take part in kind of career events and those sorts of things. So I tend to prioritise going to talk to schools that are in um, kind of more deprived areas or more ethnically diverse areas so I've um, been to a few schools in Hackney and those sorts of things like obviously where, where I'm from as well is uh, um, somewhere that I like to go back to um, and it's just really interesting when you're talking to a room full of really 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 diverse kids and you know only a handful of them have ever heard about a clinical psychologist and to see how buzzed up they get um, you know by the end of the talk and I'm not just trying to kind of sell clinical psychology as a career but I kind of um, make a nod to all of the applied psychology careers so whether that's kind of organizational or sports psychology or educational psychology whatever it is but I provide lots of signposting to more information so that you give people the tools to be able to go away and just open their eyes to what else is out there if they all decide well that's really not for me then fair enough that's absolutely fine but it's just about showing people that you know what this is available to you and not only is it available but you can do it if you want to um that's definitely kind of a message that i that i send out sarah is so right that the theory of you can't be what you can't see holds true in every sphere even if what she says only inspires one young person to consider a career as a psychologist when they might not have done before that's one in the right direction we discussed a little earlier about mistakes and failures in Sarah's career. So I asked her then about her motivations and what keeps her fresh at work. You know, it's quite a tough, stressful profession. I imagine you would often be dealing with people in some quite serious, quite heavy situations. How do you step away from that? And how do you cope with uh, times when what you hear might be quite distressing or could be quite difficult? Yeah, I mean, it's a really tricky question because I've probably plopped myself into one of the, say, I was going to say one of the trickier um, areas of work, but that's not fair because all, all working with distress in whatever capacity it looks like is going to be tricky for different reasons. So that that's not fair to say. But the um, I work with well my my area of interest um, and where kind of I'm trying to kind of specialise specifically. Um, is working with uh, people that experience psychosis, but that have also experienced really, really difficult life events and traumas and might have um, kind of co-occurring post-traumatic stress difficulties alongside their psychosis. So um, I've worked with people, for instance, who have been through some horrendous events and a part of my psychological work with that person if they wish to work on those particular difficulties if you know if that's something that's causing a problem for them day to day one of the things that we do kind of involves going through with a fine tooth comb exactly what happened to them um and yeah I've definitely heard some stories that stay with you um 
And I think one thing that I try and do is to not put pressure on myself not to feel it, if that makes sense. Because I think that we there's a lot of pressure for us as mental health professionals to obviously, you know, you keep it together, you are the container, you contain and you hold the distress and the stuff that someone is bringing and that is your role, 100%. But I don't think that that necessarily means that you can't feel that pain. And I've been brought to tears in sessions by things that people have said and you know there might be some psychologists out there listening I'm sorry if I don't disagree I don't don't agree with with your approach but some people that will hold you know it's never appropriate to kind of cry in a therapy room you know because the space shouldn't be about your stuff which is right it should be about the other person's stuff however I think that that human interaction of hearing such suffering and you being able to say god hearing what happened to you that is awful. I am so sorry that that happened. And having a tear to that or strong emotion, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But actually, I think that that can be incredibly validating for someone that you can be, you can share that, you know, and that can be felt. Um, So I think the first thing is allowing myself to be honest with how I feel about what people are telling me and the distress that I hear. Um, But it also means that you really do have to have good self-care so I practice yoga I definitely find that helpful for me because it takes your mind out of your mind and onto your body so you're focused on your movement you're focused on your breath so that creates a bit of space um it's it's really funny to say but sometimes a shower sometimes you just need to shower it away you just it's very symbolic you just wash it all off um or even if you can't do that in the middle of the day I might wash my hands and I know it sounds really strange but it's a bit cleansing you know just to kind of refresh yourself a little bit um I also benefit from writing so whenever I've had a particularly tricky session um or something that's really stuck with me I tend to write down my thoughts and my feelings about it and that kind of puts it puts it to bed because it puts it on the paper and I feel like I don't I don't have to own it kind of anymore um and I'm also very I'm a very open book and I like to use my supervision so when I'm supervised by a more senior um psychologist which every psychologist will be um I tend to make sure and kind of negotiate at the start of supervision that we will have a space to kind of reflect on difficult content that might have come up and kind of what that's what that's doing for me or kind of why that's hit home or you know what's significant about that for me because whether you're a therapist or not you know you you have your own stuff too something that we that we need to practice is really good self-reflexivity and self-awareness and there's no point in pretending you know if you know it's it can't be a do as I say not as I do type situation that psychologists mm-hmm. preach to other people what they should be doing but then we'd I mean you know we probably do do a lot of that to be fair you know I wouldn't encourage my clients to drink and I know that I like a glass of wine after a hard day but um, <laughs> um oh my god doesn't everyone well exactly um but you know I think that realistically I wouldn't have been doing myself justice either for my training experience if I had put myself knowingly into situations where I wasn't going to be able to learn at my fullest capacity you know and also it's not fair I still have a duty of care there's no point in me pretending that I can help someone or that I would be in a um, position to be able to try to help if if I wasn't going to be and so I always try to really encourage people just to be honest with where they're at because that's the way you look after yourself. 
by not putting yourself into situations knowingly that are going to be harmful for you. We, we're we just going to touch on a little bit about, hip. Um, I was going to say hypnosis, but that's not what I mean. <laughs> Sorry. Psychosis, that's the one. One of the things I was wondering is, when somebody's having an episode of psychosis, in layman's terms, what is happening in your brain when that happens? So that's a really tricky question because it's... Okay. <laughs> Um, uh, there's kind of no one answer um, to that I would argue I guess um, because there's tons and tons of debate about um, kind of the validity of of psychosis as a as a kind of term anyway um, just because it's really just an umbrella for a real cluster of different experiences because no two people's experience will be the same Um, but Typically, if we think of kind of what could be going on for people, it tends to be things like um, changes to the way people think about things. Um, So, for instance, sometimes people develop um, really strongly held beliefs um, that maybe don't quite fit with the way other people might think about certain things or they might be... um, kind of worrying or frightening in nature. Um, So, you know, sometimes you might hear words like persecutory delusions being thrown around, um, either kind of in healthcare, in the media and those sorts of things. And that normally will involve someone um, believing that they're in danger in some way. So maybe the government are after them or a certain person is after them or, you know, there's some other that is kind of out to cause them harm, which understandably then is absolutely terrifying and um often even in the face of maybe evidence to suggest that might not be the case that still is a real felt sense of danger that someone can't quite shift um so sometimes people have beliefs like that um but also sometimes people can have changes to their perceptions. So the things they see or hear or feel in their bodies um, can be um, changed. So, for instance, people might start to hear things maybe that other people don't hear, like voices or noises. Um, they might uh, see things that other people can't see, like um, people or colours or animals. It can, you know, it can really be absolutely anything. Um but it really is that kind of um, altered sense of of perception or thinking that really kind of I would argue differentiate psychosis um, like experiences from 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 other um, kind of mental health difficulties, um, and obviously alongside all of those things, you're going to get really strong emotional changes to to boot with those. I mean, you know, it would completely make sense that if you're seeing something that's quite frightening that you haven't seen before, or that's really difficult to make sense of, or you're thinking about things in a way that's new and scary and 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 confusing, that you know that's going to come along with um, you know anxiety and low mood and fear or hostility or you know just. A, a plethora of different emotions really that maybe might not have been experienced day to day prior to the changes um, in someone's thinking or their perception. Hmm. And what tends to, what tends to be the trigger for, um, for that sort of, like are there particular things that you can kind of put your finger on, you know, whether that's uh, trauma or, you know, people often talk about uh, use of particular drugs or, you know, is there any proven link between, 
one one or or more particular things that can that can potentially be linked with yeah. psychosis. Yeah, there, I mean, there's so much research um, going on. There's really, really exciting research. Um, mm, sounds that cool. Are, yeah, that are looking into all different types of um, associations. So um, obviously it's always difficult to necessarily prove causality um, that, you know, to definitely say that one thing 100% causes that. But I think it's it's a real mixed bag. And they know that there are a number of risk factors, for example, that, um, you know, if they take... Uh, a group of people that are experiencing um, psychotic symptoms or, you know, experience psychosis, and they compare that to a group of people that don't, there are a number of things that normally pop up that are um, that are seen more frequently um, in the group that are having psychosis experiences. So we do know that um, people that experience psychosis are um, more likely to have reported um, traumas so um, there's quite a strong link between childhood um, trauma and going on to um, develop psychosis. Um, and there are also links with things like migration. So having moved to a different country, there are links um, with being an ethnic minority um, compared to, kind of, if we're looking at kind of UK samples, um, compared to being white British. Um, there are links that have been shown in research with regard to um, kind of urbanicity, kind of living in um, high population density areas. Really? Yeah. Gosh. So, um, I mean, it's... That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, really interesting because there aren't necessarily, again, a, a, a direct... You know, it's not just because there are more people necessarily in that place, which then leads to psychosis, but all the factors that come along with that. So, you know, we're thinking um, there are ideas around kind of less social cohesion, you know, living in an urban environment, you know, just there being kind of so much more stressors. Um, you know, people talk about possibly in urban environments, there being um, less kind of social capital and more things like crime. But, you know, all the all the kind of tricky things that come along with living in each other's pockets, so to speak, um, can be um, things that might provide the right um, types of environment, so to speak, to open the door to certain types of experiences. Because I guess there's, there's I would say there's probably the most um, agreement maybe around more of a, a stress vulnerability model or a kind of more biopsychosocial model, because there are 100%, I mean, we know that there are biological factors that that come into play and there are um, changes to the brain that occur and also we know that if someone has um, a relative um, like for instance their parents that have um, a more severe mental health difficulty like like psychosis for example um, that they are more likely to go on to um, develop psychosis themselves Um, but I guess the way we we tend to describe it to to clients is that if you take um, vulnerability on its own um kind of that biological vulnerability for example but we don't have any of the the kind of um environmental stressor then that's one thing but then we might have someone that doesn't have any of the vulnerability but has lots of the 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 stressors um but really it's about putting those two together so you're most likely to develop something if you have the vulnerability and all the stresses that come kind of in daily living and it's kind of that that cocktail of the two that can make someone more likely to go on to develop psychosis and again the tricky thing about that is that not everyone that has a vulnerability and has kind of significant life events or you know has been smoking you know really high potency uh 
skunk or something like that. Not everyone with that with that cocktail are going to go on to develop psychosis, but we tend to see more, if that makes sense, in that population. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And what was it that got you interested in this topic area to begin with? You know, what was it about the diagnosis of psychosis in particular that got piqued your interest and kind of made you take that little rock take that route into your career yeah being frank I probably fell into it by accident in so many people that, say that um, about their careers though yeah because <laughs> so obviously I was I was brains 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 wasn't yeah, I yeah, I was always yeah. like, I was after the brains well after wanting to be after the dead people um I, <laughs> I love the dead people I, I love really... the dead people thing <laughs> yeah I'm not sure what that was about anyways um you don't want so, anyone else to psychoanalyze you too hard I don't think <laughs> no I know I don't want to open that door I'm happy and pleased with that door being firmly closed I'm I'm at peace with that that's a bit of me that I don't need to understand but that's okay um <laughs> so when I um when I finished uni I took on that job for free for six months and that was in brain injury and um, neurological rehabilitation so I worked in stroke and for people that had um, neurological disorders so I did that and then for free for six months and then because of my neuro experience that helped me to get a paid job um, working in a stroke service so again kind of staying along the same lines um, you know thinking about the brain and more neuropsychology and that was a short-term contract for that job. So I only worked that job for four months. It was a, a time-limited project we were working on to develop a, a screening tool for cognitive impairments post-stroke at three and six months, which was re- really super interesting. Um, but when that came to an end, obviously I had a mortgage and I needed to continue to build my experience. Um, and I was at that time, to be honest, it was just applying for any type of assistant psychologist job or research job that would give me access to a clinical psychologist and kind of clinical populations to help me build my CV. And it just so happened that a job came up at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. Um, A job came up which was looking for um, people that had experience of neuropsychological assessment, which I'd been doing because of my neuro jobs. Um, And they were looking for someone to help on a randomized control trial, a really big trial, multi-center trial they were doing, looking at cognition in people that had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. But it's kind of like a brain training um, type therapy, um, because in people that have a diagnosis of psychosis or schizophrenia, we know that they're they have um, cognitive impairments. So things like memory and attention, um, all those, all those kind of thinking skills can sometimes become kind of a a bit impaired, really. So this brain training therapy is to help people to develop compensatory strategies and increase their metacognition, they're thinking about their thinking to get to um, kind of overcome some of the obstacles that they're facing. So I thought, gosh, that sounds really super interesting. And I've definitely got the neuro experience. Um, I think this might be a way for me to edge into the more mental health side of things. And I interviewed and I got the job. And literally, I remember the first client that I saw. I remember him so clearly um, because a part of my job was um, conducting these neuropsychological assessments um, after someone had had the therapy. And... um, And I remember him talking about his experiences and the things that were going on for him. And I was just hooked. And I've, Mm. yeah, I've, I've been in psychosis ever since. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
amazing. And what is the difference? You just alluded briefly to schizophrenia there. What's the difference between psychosis and schizophrenia or can they be linked? Because that's one thing I've not been really clear about. Yeah, so... um so schizophrenia is kind of the old school diagnostic kind of hardline label um, that people that had experiences of psychosis would have been given. So that was the diagnosis. So things like schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, you know, you hear the terms schizophrenic and they're really awfully, horribly stigmatizing words. So we really, well, especially because I currently work in a team for in early intervention, which is really helping people at the first stage of when these experiences first come along. And we aren't slapping terribly stigmatizing labels on people like schizophrenia. That's the label that kind of gets put on and kind of stays on. And people have all sorts of misconceptions about what that is. I mean, the media, I think, just run crazy with things, you know, schizo, we've seen them all over the all over the, the, the tabloids, and it's ultra unhelpful. Um, the more preferred term now is is psychosis. But again, psychosis is more, it's not necessarily a diagnosis. So you're not going to find that in kind of diagnostic manuals. Um, but you'll find that is more of the kind of colloquial way that we can describe people's experiences. I think that's a bit more acceptable. Um, but yeah, psychosis is more of the of the umbrella. And then you would have sub kind of former yeah. diagnoses yeah. within yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, it's really interesting because I was listening to a podcast yesterday with um, a guy called Johnny Benjamin, who is a mental health campaigner. And he's somebody who, it's really interesting, actually, he um, about 10 years ago was going to jump off Waterloo Bridge when um, he had has been diagnosed with um, schizoaffective disorder now and he um, talked about his experiences of psychosis and the stigmatization of people with those sorts of mental health uh, problems is that something that crops up I mean I'd imagine that crops up pretty regularly in your job does it the stigma and and people's so the social issues that go alongside people having that yeah yeah for sure I mean it's, I think it's, um, I'm in a very incredibly privileged position to work in early intervention because the whole idea of early intervention is to be the non-stigmatising entrance into mental health services. And even though we are the non-stigmatising door, ultimately mental health services still unfortunately carry a level of stigma um, that you know, it sounds like through through the absolutely invaluable work of, of people, you know, like who you just described, are helping to kind of break down those barriers and to get the story out there that, you know, when, you know, people with mental health difficulties are no different to anyone else. And actually, we're kind of doing ourselves an injustice. And we're kind of letting ourselves down really by categorizing people as other just because maybe they have experiences that we don't have. Um, but also, I think, you know, the fact that ultimately a lot of the things that we see in psychosis occur on a continuum anyway so you know the occurrence of hearing a voice that maybe other people can't hear that happens in a large proportion of the general population you will have some people that have never heard that before and that will slide all the way along to people who hear 10 voices every day and we all fall somewhere along that line um you know i'm very open with my clients and friends and family that I remember that I had a period of time when I was, oh gosh, how old was I? I think I was maybe like around between like 10 or 12. And I used to hear a screaming voice before I used to go to sleep. 
And this happened for months and it was so scary. And I thought to myself, I do not know what is going on here. And it just used to scream. And I was thinking to myself, I'm, I think I'm losing my mind. I don't know what quite is going on here, but I'm just going to keep calm and I'm just going to go to sleep. And eventually it stopped. And I've never really made sense of it, to be honest. And I don't think you really have to make sense of it, to be fair. I think one of the things that um, differentiates a, and I'm doing this in kind of um, air quotes, but a kind of need for care population versus a non-need for care population isn't the occurrence of these things, but it's the distress that it causes. Because ultimately, if you're going along your life and you have a voice that talks to you and whether it says nice things or bad things, but the way you make sense of that isn't necessarily distressing, it doesn't impact on you day to day, you're able to live your life, then who am I to say that you need to have mental health services involved in your life? No, crack on. If it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, I, I, I don't I don't believe in 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 being the person who holds the key to what you're allowed to experience and what you're not. But ultimately, 99.9% of the people that I see, the experiences that they are having are causing a significant detrimental impact to either their emotional well-being or the way they live their lives day to day and have been stopping them um, living the life they want and that's then why mental health services are involved to try to help people get back to living a valuable life mm-hmm. and that's really interesting actually because um donna fraser who was on the podcast just before christmas you know she has been an olympic athlete she told me in a conversation we had before we started that she has an alter ego that she calls diane you know and she was just like you know, I talk to myself, I talk to Diane, you know, I, that's, and that is her person who shook her out when she was needing a talking to or whatever, you know, and she said that was an association with her training, which I thought was really interesting, you know, that, um, somebody who was clearly phenomenally successful in the field that she has been, you know, like you don't go to the Olympics easily. Um, and that she was just really open about the fact that, yeah, like she had a voice and it's it's so interesting, the brain and, you know, what we hear inside our heads because, you know, when you talk about metacognition and the kind of knowledge of self, there's so much we don't know and you know it's Yeah, it's it's very it's very, very, very interesting. And, you know, um it's really even interesting when when you when you talk to people about their experience of of voice hearing um and how everything is just so different for different people and the, the the phenomenology you know what it's kind of what it's really like can can vary so much you know do you hear it as kind of something that's across the room do you hear it something like inside you is it is it kind of sound like it's being broadcast to you is it right next to you you know can can you orientate towards it you know people have very different the the qualities to the experience um and it's been it really really has been such an incredible as you know i've said it before a very a real privilege to to work alongside and work with people that have such experiences and you know what they what they can teach you about kind of resilience and strength and just the sheer strength that people have to overcome 
really, really, really difficult obstacles. You know, I remember in my training, we did an exercise um, when we first started our um, psychosis teaching and we were, you know, um, learning about voice hearing and hallucinations and those sorts of things. We were given a task where we had to try to have a conversation with um, another trainee whilst a third trainee spoke in your ear constantly without stopping and they either had to I think we had to draw maybe um, a piece of paper as to say what type of voice would you be would you be um, kind of just narrating on what the person was doing so you know having a voice saying oh now she's stroking her ear oh now she's trying to talk to that person she's really trying to concentrate but she's not doing a very good job oh look now she's picking up her pen whether whether the voice was doing that so off-putting yeah it was really hard but you know what was actually really really surprising I had which I think was a very good experience, although I found it very difficult. I had the opportunity, my voice that I had was um, a malevolent voice. So it was saying really awful, horrible, scary, derogatory, not nice things to me, which is often um, the type of voice that I have, um, that when I work with people, that they talk about having voices of this nature. Um, And for one minute, I had to hold a conversation whilst I had this going on and genuinely it nearly brought me to tears by the end of that one minute. And I remember it being such a humbling experience because this is often the reality day to day that my clients are going through. And sometimes, you know, just to really have just a sliver of um, time in their shoes, just in one tiny aspect of their experience can really make you see um kind of the worth of the role that you're doing and gives you such a sweet feeling if you're able to make kind of good changes with someone you know when you're able to kind of sit there at the end of a course of therapy and someone is doing something they weren't before or someone is able to manage in the way they weren't before or you know those sorts of things just make all of the the challenges and the difficulties just fall away and you just think right this is exactly why I'm doing this job. It's so rare these days that you hear someone speaking so positively about how much they enjoy their job. And I love that Sarah clearly really appreciates her career and what it brings her as well as the good that she can do. If you're interested in a career in psychology, I've popped some links on the show page for the British Psychological Society and the National Careers Service. So do have a look at those. If you enjoyed Sarah's story, then please do share this episode however you like with others that you think may enjoy it too. That's it for today. But as ever, if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, drop me a line because I love to hear from you. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us. But more importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling. And we'll hopefully see you next time.